Welcome to Data Myths Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Melinda Gagnon. So, a little about us. I'm interested in how tech helps us improve our lives. I have 20 years experience in digital communications. I'm an ex-Googler and now help launch new companies and products. And I've spent 20 plus years evangelizing tech at some of the world's largest companies. Whether you're a datafile or a dataphobe, we have something for you on this podcast. So get ready. Let's go. Hi, good morning, Brian. How are you? It's a wonderful weekend and we're recording a podcast again. Living the good life. I know. So what's been new with you? A little bit of travel, but now I've got a little stretch of no travel, so uh, I'm out of the clouds, which is good. Nice. Well, I actually, funny enough, would, would like to get us back in, back into the clouds for, for this chat this morning. And one of the things that I've been, been thinking a lot about, and especially since our, our last podcast, when we talked about AWS last week and cloud computing, is to actually dive into that deeper and talk about what that actually is. So I think a lot of people hear the word cloud and it's become very, very common, but I don't think people actually know what the heck it means. Well, and so I would say when I feel like I need to start doing a stronger job of explaining things to the masses uh, in technology, because there's a lot of stuff that Uh, becomes a fancy word and then never really makes it to the general public. Uh, When my parents, love you guys, uh, start asking questions like, hey, should we buy or sell gold? We noticed that uh, everybody seems to be doing it. Or should we get the cloud? Because I got some notification on my phone saying that I should use the cloud. Or, hey, should we get blockchain? It's like, what are you guys talking about? What about Bitcoin? What about Bitcoin? So, yeah, I think you should definitely mine Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, why, why not? You know, they're retired. <laughs> could be could be a fun fun hobby. Yeah. So, so to to think about cloud, right? And it's one of those things that yes, we we hear about it, and I clearly people don't even know that actually you you are using it. I mean, if you're um, you're using Gmail, if you're using a lot of these different types of just everyday services that you're participating in the cloud. We had a, a, a funny chat with a family friend what, a month ago about AI. I think that was in a, a recent podcast. And, and she said, do you think, do you think it's coming? Do you think AI is, is something that, that we're, that's going to become real? And we kind of said, well, it's, it's here now you're using it now, you know, and, and that's the same type of, of thing with, with the cloud. It's, it's here. We're all in it, using it. So, all right, let's talk about what it actually is. So can you define for me what the cloud is? First of all, I just want to say robots are very, very sneaky. So you have to watch out for them. Same with AI. That's so scary. Yeah, no, it is. But yeah, so my definition of the cloud is a pool of shared resources that exist out on the internet somewhere. Now, there are many, many different definitions of what that boils down to, but I think that's a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So it can be basically shared computing resources for software and data. Yeah, so it could be shared storage, it could be shared 
network resources. It could be shared compute. It could be shared database or a web server or whatever. Cool. And it's accessed via the internet. Yeah. I think that's a a great way to put it. Cool. All right. So that's fantastic. Now we all know. How does that actually come to life? So there are different ways that we can deploy the cloud. How do we start to break that down so we know how it how it works? Well, so let's talk about it a little bit higher level for, for the moment. And the benefit of the cloud, right, as we speak about it, is that, wow, the cloud has made it really easy to start a business cheaper than ever because all of these resources that you traditionally had to have an IT person or really expensive hardware on site, you know, is no longer there, right? So the barrier to entry has never been lower and that's a great thing. And there's also a number of reasons why that's also a challenging thing, but we'll get into that later. So I think to best serve your question we need to probably back up a little bit and go before the cloud. So how did stuff work before the cloud existed? So does that work for you if I go back and... Sure, take us back. All right, way back machine again. So if we go all the way back before personal computers even came about, mainframes ruled. And so they built these massive scale compute structures. Some of them were as big as a train car. You know, ENIAC, one of the first mainframes or first computers really, was about the size of a, you know, railway car. It took a ton of electricity. It had really expensive components. And it was very, you know, specialized. And so as a result, it took, you know, operators to be able to operate this. And IBM got on that bandwagon as well, started to build all of these mainframes. And by the way, when you go to the airport and you ask to look up your ticket or make some changes and the person is blankly smiling at you, typing away for 15 minutes and you're like, there's only 12 letters in my whole first and last name. How could they still be typing? Um, That's why they're typing commands into a mainframe because most of the airline industry, most of freight, most of all of those major systems, in most cases, still run on a mainframe. That's really incredible to think about that. Well, and so mainframe is not a bad, dirty word, but let's talk more about why it sort of fell out of favor in some cases. So the mainframe, big, expensive iron And in fact, they call it big iron in a lot of cases, Uh, you know, expensive to run, expensive to do all these things. Um, Because it was such an expensive resource, they really made sure that it was sized properly and that it was fully utilized as much as possible. And so in a lot of cases, they would have people that just like looked at time scheduling and they had operators and operators would schedule jobs or applications to run on the mainframe. And boy, those were the days. So if a backup had to run, they had somebody back there moving tapes around uh, until they had robots to do that. That was one actually the first, you know, robotics projects was 
changing out backup tapes and bringing tapes back online. I mean, that's kind so of So when you say tapes, what do you mean by tapes? What are, what are these tapes like? Yeah. So they, if you think of like a, either an eight track tape, which was before my time or a cassette tape, it's not too far off of that, but they were digital tapes for making rather than vocal recordings or video recordings, actually taking data and backing them up on these tapes. So that's some of the Wayback Machine. So now like, let's, let's move forward. And so that operator person or people uh, that were operating the mainframe, plus how specialized the hardware was, it became really difficult to be flexible and you know, policy, procedure, and people, uh, I think many of those operators were people that tried to get into the state police and couldn't or something like that. And so they had a little bit of that God complex. It's also why in every hacker movie ever, um, you know, God or uh, Gandalf, for that matter, uh, are the two most used passwords back in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, but that's a whole different story. The psychology <laughs> of, of early computer science would be good. Yeah, no, look it up. I'm not, think about. I'm not just making it up. Uh, but anyhow, so there kind of became that command and control piece. And so the mainframe is not very flexible or it wasn't very flexible. So what happened was people started to look at things like how can we make a mini computer so that we could be flexible and still work on stuff that was still cost effective? So now the early, you know, 80s really come about. IBM PC comes about. The Mac comes about. Altair comes about. And so all of these microcomputers start to come about. And why was that important? Well, that started the birth of flexibility as well as really cheap and economical hardware. And so the client server was born and because people needed to be able to network, right? And they wanted to be able to take stuff from one PC and move it to another or work in a work group together with people in the office. So networking came about. It got a little easier uh, to do and now we needed to do something where there was a server that was just running stuff, whether it be maybe answering print jobs and then sending it to the printer or serving up files so that four or five other computers could get to it, all of those types of tasks. And so the client server was built. And the great part about that, back in the day, people started to just buy them and they put them under their desk. Right. And then a bunch of people would connect to them. But over time, they started to grow in popularity because that's where a lot of the development was getting done. That's where a lot of the growth was happening. And it was just so much easier to do that than it was to deal with the mainframe operator. And so when I got to college, that whole battle was just starting to kind of awaken. So there was still a mainframe. All of the emails were off of the mainframe. You couldn't, you couldn't do a ton of stuff. They were very restrictive in how many emails you could have and such. But then a whole other group on campus built a client server type network where they had mail servers that were much more flexible and 
they were changing rapidly and getting more features every day. Um, it wasn't, you know, monochromatic um, text command line stuff. It was actually Windows based. So a lot of those things. And so why didn't that, where did that go, right? So over time, what started to happen is that control piece and that flexibility became a little too much and it just started to grow like wildfire. And so IT professionals then started to say, hey, we got to get back control. So then they started pulling back. Which they often do. <laughs> which they often do. Yeah, it's a definite control freak. Uh, well, it, it's their job, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I could point out some places that didn't have good control. And <laughs> right. Hence your uh, social security numbers and uh, credit card numbers are all over the net somewhere. So comforting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what could they possibly do? But anyhow, so what started to happen is that decentralization started to centralize again. And so now these bigger data centers started to be born. And the reason they did it was economies of scale. Having all the servers in one place, you could have networking that was much more dense and cost-effective. You didn't have to spread it out all over the place. And so that was great. But then what happened is it was so easy. It was like, oh, let's just make another file server. Let's just make another web server for another web page. And so every department, every person, every company had hundreds and hundreds of these servers. And some of the challenge with that is that utilization started to drop drastically. So you're getting more complexity and less utilization. Exactly. Are those, those are the two main factors that are starting to tip the scales here. Exactly. And the other piece to it is now that control started to creep in again. So innovation became harder because there were things like patch cycles where you had to patch the operating system and all of these different problems. And then, you know, businesses have redundancy needs and durability needs of their data. And so all of these challenges started to make the cost of the hardware rise as well as the cost of operating all of the software rise as well. So now we're into probably the late 90s uh, into the early 2000s. So the dot bomb just happened. Uh, you know, Companies like Red Hat are going against Microsoft big time. Uh, Cisco is, you know, has pumped out a bunch of much lower cost networking uh, at really high densities. And so the data center and co-location, which is taking a company's stuff and putting it in a data center with another company's stuff and sort of segregating it, segregating it off, that was kind of step one. But then we needed another method. So are you, are you, is that good so far? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is, makes a lot of sense. The, the walkthrough is helpful to see how this all came about and why there was a need for this innovation. Okay, cool. And so we're, we're getting to the cloud quick. So one of the challenges with this is that all of these servers were different little silos, you know, hundreds and hundreds of silos. It became really difficult to back them all up. If you ever had a hardware problem or God forbid the hardware that you had from last year, you have a failure and now you need to replace it. And oh, wait, they don't make the hardware anymore. 
Now you have to put it on a different piece of hardware. It became really difficult to have that same stack, so to speak, so that programmers had a very measured you know, set of hardware and software to work off of. So tons of problems on the DevOps side, development operations. So 1999, maybe even 1998, VMware comes about. And so VMware decides, okay, I'm going to go after the Intel architecture x86 space, and we're going to make it so that you can take a bunch of different physical servers and collapse those down onto one piece of hardware. Sound familiar? Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's going Quite back. revolutionary. Yeah. So that's sort of like going back to the mainframe again. That's taking all of these different jobs, applications, threads, whatever you'd like to call them, and collapsing them down onto one piece of hardware and then segmenting them so that each one was its own encapsulated virtual machine. So in comes virtualization. So when you talk about virtualization, did virtualization then come before cloud computing came along? Absolutely. Okay. And virtualization, by the way, actually came out on the mainframe. IBM came out with something called LPARs way back, and it never really caught on. It definitely didn't catch on in the x86 space because they never went for that. So VMware had a big opening and went after the Intel x86 space. And so away we go. And they, they started going out, talking to companies and saying, hey, you have a problem. You have all of these servers that are just growing out of control. Everybody's got their own server. Um, and the utilization is lower than ever. And so in most cases even in through the late 2000s, utilization in a server room was below 10%. Yeah. And so on average, obviously, there are some systems that, uh, that were higher than that. So, so when VMware was first getting started and they're, they're going to companies and offering the service, what were the main benefits that they were talking about? So that's a great question. So the first main benefit was that you could take a bunch of different operating systems and put them onto the same piece of hardware. So rather than having 10 servers, 10 physical pieces of hardware, you could have one server that was a little bit bigger and you could take those 10 different versions of Windows or versions of Linux or versions of whatever and in little containers, so to speak, you could put those on that one piece of hardware. And so as a result, if each of those were only 10% utilized, collapsing that down onto one, you know, a little bit bigger piece of hardware, now it's 80 or 90% utilized. So much better utilization. So power, heat, cooling, all of those types of things really got mitigated by that. And so cost savings started to become a really big thing, as well as being able to control and make sure that the hardware was all the same. Cool. And and so VMware had quite a long 
development before they really became mainstream, before it really blew up. So when when did that happen and, and what changed in the technology landscape usage that pushed them over the top? So that's a great question. So they started in the desktop space, actually, or the workstation space. And the reason for that was developers, right? It became really difficult for a developer to get an environment that looked exactly the same. But with virtualization, there was that virtual hardware that looked the same exactly every single time. And it was abstracted from the hardware below so that there was software in between. That was virtualization. That was the hypervisor. And so they were able to have multiple different virtual machines on their laptop or on their workstation so that they could make changes rapidly. And then if they screwed something up, it was really easy to just delete that one file because the, the computer was actually just a single file. And the hypervisor, I mean, this is something that's unique to VMware, right? I mean, IBM didn't do this. Is I, this something that's really all their own at this point? Well, on the x86 platform, it was, yes. Uh, it's it's arguable that Linux, Unix, and the mainframe, the way that they operate were sort of all built off of that premise of multi-tenant um, architecture. Okay. Okay. And define multi-tenant for me. So multi-tenant would be taking multiple different resources and being able to break them up and sort of encapsulate them so that, you know, it's kind of like going into a telephone booth. If there are like three different telephone booths, you go into one, you've got a telephone, I go into the next one, I've got a telephone, we can make different calls. It's almost like I don't really know that you're in the next booth over because I'm encapsulated. I have my own phone. I have all of that stuff. You have all of that same stuff on in your little telephone booth, but I don't really hear what's going on, et cetera. Okay. So, so the example you're giving earlier about having different operating systems, that's, that is an example. Exactly. Okay. And we are super geek fest on this episode. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, sure. Yes. It's so important though. And maybe we think it's important because it's just part of what we live and breathe every day, but you know, it's kind of something that I always want to encourage people to say, hey, you know, this is the world we live in. Let's open up our eyes here. And it, if it only takes, you know, 40 minutes, <laughs> like we're, we're going through right now to, to start to understand it, that's awesome. So I, I love this geekiness. So thank you for diving into everything. We're in definite data file mode versus data. Data phobes are probably like ears are bleeding. Oh no. <laughs> I hope our data phobes feel, feel comfortable and, nice. and know that we love them. So let's, let me, let, let's continue. Right. So now you asked where did this go and how fast did it get there? Yeah. So now VMware 2007, they went public. So that's eight year eight years of company before they go public. Um, the great part about that, or actually the opportunity of that is when they went public, such a small percentage of data centers were actually virtualizing at that point and collapsing their, their infrastructure that there was so much upside. And so the interesting part to that is 
Now all of a sudden, big players, all the big banks who had 50,000 plus servers in their infrastructure were looking at this and saying, I don't have to build a $100 million data center. I can build you know, maybe just a few of them instead of 20 of them. And we should probably throw in the little footnote that you were working at VMware in the very early days True. as one of their lead architects. And do you want to talk about some of those huge projects that you worked on? I don't. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Major projects. We'll just say that. So, but, but just a good thing to note that you were, you were at VMware. Jeez, what, what time the, frame was the, that? In the early days past when we went IPO. So, so the golden years. Yeah. Through early and through their IPO. So you yeah. saw the crazy hockey stick growth. You saw when basically companies started to realize, wow, I'm missing something by not incorporating this technology. And this is the way of the future. Exactly. And so now let's, VMware had a little bit more part of this before we get to the cloud. And all of the stuff that we've talked about sort of laid the framework of why the cloud became the relevance that it is today. And so as time went on, people started to say, hey, this is so easy. We went from two weeks of being able to buy a server, get it stood up, get power to it, get networking to it, get it put in a rack so that we could use it and then load operating system windows or whatever on top of it and get it useful and then patch it and have security, the security team look at it and bless it and away you go. So they started to say, okay, this is great. We can do this in like six minutes now or 30 minutes and get a machine up and running. So part of the problem with that is it started to spin out of control because now you've got templates and it was really easy to just make a server template and then clone it and have a hundred new virtual machines up and running. So then came the need for catalogs of machines and being able to take a base image and then apply software on top of that. And so that sort of started to build where the cloud was going and coming from. And so I believe in 2006 timeframe, that's when AWS came about. And so now let's talk about where that came from and why. So if you can imagine a company like Google or a company like Amazon, by the very nature of what they're doing, requires a ton of compute, a ton of memory, a ton of storage. And, and are those really the factors that gave rise to the cloud? I mean, with the, the rapid rate of development and just the amount of data that we're starting to generate? You betcha, right? It, it also came to that resource utilization piece. And so if you think about it, um, a lot of the stuff with Gmail, for instance, uh, I don't know if it's still this way today, but you would always see the number down at the bottom of storage that you could have available, and it was down to like decimals, but you always saw it growing a little bit. Well, what that was is excess storage that when Google stood up more search systems, they were carving off a little tiny piece of every single disk in their whole data center, hundreds of thousands of servers worth, you know, and growing, 
and they were just carving off little pieces. And then that little piece went into a shared pool of storage that they assigned to Gmail. So they were just kind of using up that excess and hey, wow, they made a product that the public could consume. <laughs> and that product, Gmail, was it was an engineer's 10% project. Yeah. So Which somebody built that between amazing. lunch and recess time at Google. Yeah, yeah. Just a little little side little side project. Yeah. So, you know, moving forward, Amazon, tons and tons of resources needed to basically build out this online e-commerce. Well, challenge with e-commerce, people aren't buying at the same rates all day long. There's obviously seasonality as well. What a great way to make sure all of those expensive resources that you bought are fully utilized. Carve off a piece of that and sell it. So that essentially is taking that to the next level, which is that encapsulation piece and multi-tenancy That is being able to say, hey, as an organization or a business, I have a resource and I don't use it 100% of the time. And so I actually, it could be a plane. It could be the corporate jet. You know, hey, we only use this 20% of the time. Let's rent the puppy out the other 80% of the time and get some residual funds off it. So we could liken this to a share economy. Right. We absolutely can. <laughs> and that's exactly where I was going with this. This is when different application. <laughs> when your Tesla autopilot vehicle, you know, when you schedule it and say, hey, I'm going to sleep and it takes off and heads off into the darkness and uh, goes and picks up people at the airport. Makes you cake while you sleep. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Some mad cheddar stacks just mm-hmm. stacking up while it's you're the future I want. Sleeping away. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, so that really is where that was born from. It was born from excess resources and being able to encapsulate that in such a way that they could then sell the excess. So that's where we're at today. That's actually the the one thing that's really making a lot of money at Amazon, coincidentally. So cool. And and so when when a company wants to think about, well, how do I do the cloud? Do I have the right infrastructure? What are some of the things to think about? I mean, it would be probably a little crazy to think that there's a company who hasn't started to dive into this, but it's very common for organizations to take a look at what they have and say, okay, how do I need to improve this given our current needs, how we're growing, what we're getting into? So what are the things to think about? Well, one of the things that I would say is if you think about why an Amazon or a Google got to the point that they had excess resources and started to you know, offset those resources by sort of selling them, um, one of the things that a lot of businesses have also started to do if they're sufficiently large, there's no reason that J.P. Morgan or Citigroup or some of these other monster organizations, uh, they have their own, what I call public or private cloud inside of their organization. They have so many departments with all kinds of different needs. They build a private cloud that centralizes everything, makes it really easy to stand up new virtual machines or applications, and then 
can assign privilege to that and to the different groups that need the resources. So that's great. I would argue that because of their economy of scale already, the cloud probably doesn't make a ton of sense other than having some elasticity, right? And so the great part about the cloud is it's born from elasticity and you know, shrinking the elastic so that if you have to burst up, you're only really paying for the burst. You're not paying for that resource the whole time. So that's essentially what Amazon did. And and you may hear the the term right cloud cloud bursting. So <laughs> these wonderful cloud cloud images that that talks about about that basically when when you need to go from private to to public that that ability is there to, to burst from one cloud, quote unquote, to the other when you need that extra capacity, right? Exactly. So that would be a hybrid cloud where you have a cloud internal to your organization and then you have a cloud or clouds out on the public side of things, Amazon or Microsoft Azure or Google or Rackspace or a whole list of them. Uh, and being able to move in and out of those as needs arise. So maybe in November before Black Friday, you're going to have a ton of traffic. You need to spin up a bunch of web servers and applications and e-commerce to be able to handle that need and that demand. But then after you know January, when all of the returns happen and uh, all your sales are finished and calculated, now you need to scale that back to normal months. So that makes sense. Yeah. So so we have public cloud, private cloud, hybrid cloud that connects public and private. How does it make most sense to balance how those are all working together? So that's a good question. And let's let's talk about the last 10 years. So the last 10 years or, or so, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe 12 years, uh, Amazon came on really strong as well as others saying, hey, the cloud is here, move everything to the cloud uh, because the cloud is cheaper. And so some of the cost that goes into running a data center for a company is you need tons of staff, you need lots of physical space, you need power, heat, cooling, all of those types of things. Um, so it became really expensive and many of them weren't built on things like virtualization or things like internal cloud technologies that make it really easy to scale hardware as well as software in parallel. And so these technologies just didn't exist and it's really, really hard for a lot of these companies to sort of adopt it after the fact. We're getting there in the journey, but we're not quite there yet. And so my advice would be if I was a new company or if one question I always love to ask our clients is if you were to stop everything you were doing tonight and then tomorrow morning just literally take everything that you have to do from a business and do it differently. Just start from scratch. We'll take out the super big credit card and buy whatever we need. How would you do it? And when you start talking through things like that, it's usually, oh, well, 
I would do something like the cloud or I would, you know, get rid of this or get rid of that or change this process or clean up the 70% stuff, the operational stuff that is not letting me innovate. And so insert Amazon, insert a lot of these cloud players. And so they have been beating the drum on, hey, you're going to save a ton operationally. You can get rid of a lot of your staff, you know, and it became a headcount case. It also became a, hey, we could do it cheaper because you don't have to buy the resources and you can get them as you go um, and, you know, pay as you go, sort of like a, a lease situation. But here's the reality. And so reality is starting to set in. The cloud is not necessarily cheaper in every case. Uh, it, and I would argue that if you have a smaller organization, the cloud is infinitely more helpful to you because you probably don't have an IT person. You probably don't have a security person. You probably don't have a networking person and a, you know, all of these different components. You probably don't have a rack to put a server in. You know, I think of that, uh, that Wayne's world thing. Like, why would you give me a gun rack? I don't even have a gun, you know, like <laughs> it's so all of these things start to add up. Right. And if you don't have sufficient scale, you don't have economies of scale. Therefore, the cloud actually is cheaper. And so we're at the point now where a lot of these companies said, oh, hey, I saw this in a magazine. We definitely should go to the cloud. And a lot of CIOs uh, and CTOs said, hey, we're just going to put everything in the cloud because it's better, cheaper. Look, I don't have to have people, et cetera. But now that's coming home to roost. And is that because some of these these fees aren't completely understood in terms of how you store and retrieve the data? Exactly, exactly. And so transit of data is expensive and that's a cost that is hard for it to go away. And the other piece to it is competition. So we're back to a mainframe situation where, like it or not, you know, as flexible as a cloud provider will tell you that they, they can make it for you, it's still not completely flexible because of multi-tenancy and you have to, you know, sort of have a, a low common denominator to be able to appease everybody. And so the other piece is there's a lot of statistics out there that actually show that while the cost of hardware and provisioning, you know, software and, and all of that have drastically dropped. Amazon's prices haven't dropped as far and as fast. So there's starting to be opportunity in having your own if you're able to build your own cloud internally and you have sufficient size in your organization. Prime example, Dropbox. Dropbox pulled a lot of their stuff back out of the cloud. Netflix pulled a lot of their stuff back out of the cloud because they realized they had so much storage needs that their low watermark, they were paying for that and paying someone else a handsome profit for what they had to store anyway. So what they started to figure out is like, hey, we should really probably go look and see that non-elastic part of our business. Let's go build a data center that scales to that. And then let's use the cloud you know, the public cloud to sort of rubber band up or rubber band down as we have ups and downs of the business. So yeah, it totally makes sense. So, I mean, if we want to bottom line this, so 
the cloud allows us for easy scale up, scale down. It allows for increased performance, reliability, but it has to be used in the right in the right context for the right size and needs of the organization for it to, to make sense. And I would say capabilities too, right? So it it is quite a bit easier and we've got to break the cloud down into a few more pieces. So most of the stuff that we've just talked about is infrastructure as a service. So that is providing virtual hardware that you can then put an operating system on and run an application on. So that's sort of the mainframe days, the the client server days, the virtualization days, you know, still operating system centric, but you have to then manage your applications on top of that. So now you get into platform as a service. So platform as a service is saying, hey, we realize that you have to use a web server and that really all you want to do is put web pages out there or some code for your application. But you don't really care about how the web server needs to be configured and all of the underlying infrastructure to make it scale. You don't care about that or you don't have the capabilities or know-how to deal with that. But you know that you've got to build an application that's going to rapidly scale. So platform as a service is exactly that. The platform is handled by you know, the cloud and it takes care of all of that. It takes care of scale. It takes care of fault. It takes care of durability and resiliency and all of those types of things. And so, but you pay for that. So to, to go back to the hybrid cloud or having resources in-house, the other component is some of this is getting increasingly complex. If you're doing things like machine learning, now you've got GPU and TPU platforms where you've got to build out specialized software potentially to fully utilize the hardware. And so that makes it infinitely more complex, right? And so that's sort of the journey of the cloud. It's not just about operating costs or those those hard costs. It's also about capabilities and know-how now where the cloud may make sense if you're a startup and you don't have all these resources to go and build out a, a big Linux environment uh, that's super cost-effective. Now, when you get to scale and you start scaling, it very well makes sense to bring that in-house. Facebook didn't go and use Google's stuff, right? They built their own and got innovative and got their costs down. You know, Google didn't go and use Microsoft's stuff or, or whatever. They went and built their own. They didn't buy EMC storage, you know, because that's like a, a retail storage platform. They went and took hard drives and wired them all together, so to speak, uh, to make the platform that they needed. And they built a lot of that technology uh, in-house and that innovation happened in-house because they were really sort of hacking that growth and hacking the operational costs out. And with the cloud, it becomes a little more difficult to do that. So I truly believe as companies scale, they're going to start looking at how do we get more operational cost out and we're going to be back to let's go innovate and do some of this in-house and, you know, build some of our own uh, cool tech. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's clear that with cloud computing being so accessible and, and flexible, that that's certainly been a, a huge contributor to innovation, to new companies being able to start because the barrier to, to entry is, is low. And that's been really key to the, the ecosystem that we have now. I could talk about this for 25 episodes probably. So <laughs> I think so. We probably should think about wrapping it up though. Cool. Well, thank you. This has been really interesting and uh, we know more about the cloud now. Have a great Thanks. day. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is sponsored by Uprise Partners. Uprise launches startups and evolves established companies. Check it out at www.uprisepartners.com. Please like, subscribe, and share. And we'd love to hear from you. Give us a shout if you have a great idea that you want us to include. Just email us at hello at datamyths.com.